Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Every election, media organizations around the country, including NPR, rely on the Associated Press to call winners of state and national races. The real benchmark that we look for is, is there any possible way that the trailing candidate can catch up? From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll talk about how the AP calls races and what we might expect if there are delays. And... Are more city dwellers really moving to rural New England during the pandemic? The pandemic really brought out not great things about the city and shut down all the good things about the city. And what that means for a booming Cape Cod real estate market. I have never experienced what we are experiencing now. Plus, Boston hip-hop artist Latrell James. I felt like at one point, people boxed me into just being a rapper and not realizing like that's not what I really want to do. I'm just an artist. I want to create. I want to make people happy. I want to connect with people when they're sad. I want to connect to people and make them dance. It's Next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. As we inch closer to the election, we've been hearing from New Englanders anxious to turn out and vote. But for voters who are transgender, non-binary, or gender non-conforming, this can be an especially stressful time. Many face misgendering at the polls, and without formal training for election officials, many transgender and gender non-conforming people say their needs continue to go unmet. New Hampshire Public Radio's Todd Bellamy Walker has more. Ty is a black non-binary person from Manchester who's been active in politics ever since they were a high schooler, volunteering on the Bernie Sanders campaign and voting for the first time in 2016. These days, Ty spends a lot of time thinking about the upcoming election. Honestly, my biggest concern is just the results. Like, I, I spend a lot of time, like, listening and researching politics, so I'm really politically motivated. Ty uses he, him, and they, them pronouns. NHPR is using only Ty's first name because they are concerned that publicly outing themselves to strangers could put their safety at risk. As Ty gets ready to vote again in this year's presidential election, they are also bracing for some discomfort at the polling place. That's because their legal name on the voter checklist is their birth name, what many transgender people refer to as their dead name, which they no longer use. I guess when, like, I go to the poll and I get, like, my um, ballot and they hand it to me because to them I am my dead name, it feels to me like I'm almost like an imposter because, like, that's not, like, the name on the ballot isn't, like, me, you know, or at least, like, how I view myself. Questions of identity are central to the voting process. By law, voters are asked to prove who they say they are when they register and before casting a ballot. And that could bring up a lot of complicated or even painful feelings for people whose legal name or gender markers on their ID documents don't reflect their true identity. Even if they've never been denied the right to vote, some trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming voters say their experience at the polling place hasn't always been positive. Some say they've been challenged on their ID documents or outed by information in the voter file. 
you go there and you're trying to make a difference, you're trying to vote for your own right, your own safety, your own happiness. Michael Markin of Dover says it can be especially tough for voters like him, who are made to feel that their very existence is political. And when you get there, they're automatically going to misgender you, use the wrong name, use the wrong pronouns. In most cases, the people who stand between Ty, Michael, and the ballot box are local volunteer poll workers. Election officials across the state say they strive to treat all voters equally, but they also said they haven't received any special training on the nuances of the needs of this community of voters. In the absence of formal training from state or local election offices, the New Hampshire branch of the ACLU has stepped in. Polona Belkin, who works on trans issues for the ACLU, says issues like these can keep trans people from the polls. With trans folks, when you show up to the poll, you're maybe being reminded of a name that you don't want to use. Um, you may have one of these neighbors of yours, you know, well-intentioned person who just happens to use a lot of gendered terms, ma'am, mister, sir. And for some people, I think that that's enough to not show up at the polls. The attorney general's office says any voter should feel welcome at the polls and can contact them with any questions or concerns about being able to vote, regardless of their gender identity. And despite this discomfort, voters like Ty, who we met at the beginning of the story, say they are feeling more motivated than ever to make their voices heard. Like, it still sucks, and it still hurts, but, like, I feel that it's kind of a necessary evil of, like, being able to do what I can, you know, like, do my part. And for Ty's next birthday, which is a month after the election, Ty's mother is paying to help them legally change their name. So they hope by the next election cycle, the process will be less painful. That story was produced by New Hampshire Public Radio's Todd Bellamy Walker. On Next, we've talked about how New England states voted blue in the last presidential election. With a few caveats, President Trump's victory in Maine's second district and his narrow loss in New Hampshire. While Connecticut has voted for the Democratic candidate in the last seven presidential elections, areas of the state went for Trump in 2016. David Nastry lives and works in the Naugatuck River Valley, the most solidly red region in the state. He remembers an exchange he had with a friend right after Trump won. He told Connecticut Public Radio's Ali Oshinsky his friend was crying and in disbelief that so many Americans had voted for Trump. And I said, you know, what do you think of me? And she said, oh, I love you. You're, you're awesome. And I said, I voted for him. How could you do that? She said, and I said, it's a big country. He's not going to break it. Uh, I think that has been borne out. He didn't break it. He's improved a lot of it. Nastry says he plans to vote for Trump again this election, as does Liz Normand, a nurse from Prospect, Connecticut. I have a feeling a lot of people are going to vote with their hearts rather than with their heads. And I mean, Joe Biden is a nice guy and Trump isn't. However, if you look at what's happened over the past four years, I'm really happy with my life. Renee Janes of Wallingford, Connecticut, does not support Trump. Next heard from her after asking you, our listeners, how you were feeling about the upcoming election. When I hear someone who is a uh, a Trump supporter talking about the good things he's done, or there was somebody who was on, interviewed on Next last week, a man in Rhode Island who was early voting, and he said that Trump's a man of his word. And I thought, my God, how can you even say that he's a man of his word? And I wonder, 
how can we live in the same universe and see the same things and come away with such vastly different opinions? Renee says right now she's feeling beyond anxious, approaching scared. I worry that it's going to be a repeat of four years ago with, you know, all the polls showing um, Biden ahead like they did with showing Hillary ahead. But it, the, you know, the outcome is actually going to be different. So as results roll in on election night, how do we know when a particular candidate has won? NPR and many local affiliates, including stations within the New England News Collaborative, use the Associated Press to call elections. Joining us now to talk about how the AP makes the determination is Julie Pace, Washington Bureau Chief for the Associated Press. Julie, thanks for doing this. Hey, no problem. Okay, so it's election night. Local clerks in towns and cities across New England and the country are processing in-person votes and absentee ballots, and results are just rolling in. What is the AP doing to make the call on any given race, including the presidential race? Sure. So we have a huge team of people who will be involved in every step of this process. This is from everything from our 5,000 stringers who will be positioned around the country. They are actually the ones in a lot of these cases who are literally taking the tabulation from the county clerks, from other officials, uh, telling us exactly how those counties voted. And then we've got a team of analysts that are starting to dig through those numbers. They are looking for what kind of vote is coming in. Is it coming from swing areas of these states? Is it coming from heavily Republican or heavily Democratic areas? And those are the people who really start making decisions on when it looks like we're going to be able to call the race. They make recommendations to our decision desk. They sign off on those big races, particularly on the presidential and on some of the big Senate races. And, you know, I I always tell people it's not like there is one magic formula that goes into making these race calls. It really comes down to a series of different factors. And the biggest one, of course, is the margin in the race. The closer a race is, the more information we're going to need to call that race, the more vote we're going to need to have come in. But the wider the margin is, the earlier in the night um, it's likely that We'll be able to make a public decision. So when you call the race, obviously, 100 percent of the vote has not been tallied. That's correct. Right. And But you're not necessarily looking for one specific bar. It's not like this percentage of the vote is in. So now we know. Exactly. There's no one metric. You know, some states, we really do have to wait until almost all of the vote is in, as much as we can expect to come in. But ultimately, the the real benchmark that we look for is, is there any possible way that the trailing candidate can catch up? You'll be calling more than 7,000 races this year. I'm wondering, has the AP ever gotten it wrong before? (laughs) Rarely. Um, But there are a couple of instances, you know, where we have um, gotten a race wrong and we very quickly will let people know that we've gotten a race wrong. We want to be really transparent about that. Sometimes there are factors that are outside of our control. Sometimes you end up in a situation where a county um, will say, "Okay, we've told you 100 percent of the vote for our county. And then they'll come back and say, oh, we forgot. (laughs) We found some more votes or we forgot that we were waiting on this amount of vote. So we are reliant in some cases on outside factors. But I would say, you know, we really are the gold standard. And when you're calling, you know, 7,000 races, it's everything from the presidency down to state legislatures. Our success rate is unbelievably high. And we take great pride on that. And I really do think that 
people can trust the AP when we say that we've called a winner in a race. So much about this year has been unusual because of the pandemic. How are you anticipating this year will be different than past years, both taking into consideration the pandemic and other factors? Well, the big way that the pandemic has really impacted the election process is with the increase that we're seeing in mail-in voting. And so I think there is some uncertainty just about how fast that process will go. Some of these states are are really going to be doing this at this level for the first time. But I also think that it's important for people to keep in mind that a slow count, especially in some of these key states, does not necessarily mean anything went wrong. And it almost certainly will not mean that anything went wrong. It just means that because they are dealing with so many more mail-in votes, it's going to take them longer to sort through them. And in a close election, if the race is very tight between President Trump and Joe Biden, then we might not know the winner on election night. And again, that is okay. There's no rule that we have to have a winner declared on the third. We declare a winner when we know enough about the vote count. This year is also different because President Trump has made controversial comments questioning the legitimacy of the election. And and just to be clear, local and state officials say the election will be fair and safe. But I'm curious, do the president's comments have any effect on the AP's process for calling races? They don't. I, I do think you make an important point. There is no evidence of widespread voter fraud in this country in past elections or heading into this election. And we've had those assurances from Republican state officials and Democratic state officials. There simply is no evidence of that kind of vote fraud. If a politician alleges that, I do think that our most important job on that night will be to quickly and aggressively provide people with an accurate accounting of what's going on. We don't want to ignore when high-profile politicians are saying something that is inaccurate. But I also think our biggest responsibility is not just to repeat what they are saying, but to provide what the actual truth of the matter is. Julie Pace is Washington Bureau Chief for the Associated Press. It's been good talking to you, Julie. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, how the pandemic is affecting the housing market in New England and what's motivating out-of-staters to snap up properties. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. Since the pandemic hit, there's been an influx of stories in New England about a housing market boom. That's thanks in part to city dwellers who've migrated outwards in search of a place to ride out the pandemic. This trend is especially true for Cape Cod, and while the influx of people could benefit an area that struggled to attract year-round residents, it can also mean fewer people who work on the Cape can afford to live there. WBUR's Adrian Ma reports. For most people, buying a home is not an easy thing to do, but Jennifer Brogan, she did not think it would be this hard. How would you describe the experience of trying to buy a home right now? stressful. (laughs) It was, it was, 
It had to be like almost your full-time job. And Brogan already has a job. She's a social worker in Middleborough. And for decades, she's dreamed of buying a home on Cape Cod, a place where she can be near her mom and have a little more space for herself and her adult son who has autism. So this past spring, she began trying to make that dream a reality. I was hoping it would be like those HGTV episodes where you see like three houses and you get to pick the one you like the best. (laughs) But that did not happen. (laughs) Brogan scoured listings and visited properties only to see them scooped up within hours. And that's because for months, folks like her have been competing with a wave of buyers from places like Boston, New York, and Connecticut. In September, the number of homes sold on the Cape was about 50% higher than the same period last year. I've never seen it. No. I have never experienced what we are experiencing now. Debbie Martin runs ERA Cape Real Estate. On a recent Zoom chat, she says, yeah, the recent surge has made some agents a lot of money. And yet... You don't seem to be, like, smiling about this trend. (laughs) Because it's not good. It's not good for anybody. Martin points out a pretty startling statistic. Last month, the median sale price for a house on the Cape was about 540000 bucks. That is a 24% increase from just a year ago. So what does that tell you? What is for sale is going immediately. What is for sale is climbing in price. A lot of people who would normally have access to the market now don't. She says in the long term, this cannot keep going. If more affordable homes don't come to market, that would eventually mean fewer sales for realtors and less work for all kinds of jobs that are connected with real estate, like contractors and carpenters. And of course, it makes things even tougher for people who live or want to live on the Cape. I'll be honest with you. I think this is the most competitive I've seen the market during my time in the industry. Kurt Thompson heads up the Massachusetts Association of Realtors. He says across the state, he's hearing about some sellers getting dozens of offers, buyers purchasing sight unseen, and some even writing letters to sellers saying, please pick me. He says right now, homes are as hard to find as, well, basic goods were during the early days of the pandemic. It's like if you walked into a supermarket looking for uh, water or toilet paper, that's kind of how the shelves look for real estate right now. Very little on the shelves. So sticking with that for a second, what kind of homes are selling right now? Are we talking about like the store brand toilet paper or are we talking about like the Charmin double quilted? It's kind of like if you were looking for any brand of TP, it's just gone. And if that weren't enough, he says, here's another way to think about it. If new homes just stopped coming on the market, the current supply would sell out in about six weeks. Into this super competitive market steps Jennifer Brogan. Remember her? On a recent morning, after months of searching, she spotted a listing for a two-bedroom home near the middle of the Cape. I saw it hit Zillow on Saturday at like three in the afternoon. I called my realtor immediately. She called the listing agent immediately. And when we arrived, they already had, I think it was either one or two offers. To which Brogan added her own offer. Then she waited sending a prayer out into the universe. And my realtor called me and she goes, are you sitting down? And I said, I am. And she said, you got the house. And I was like, what? She's like, you got the house. I was like, oh my gosh, how? <laughs> okay, so I have I've just pulled up your house on Zillow. It's, a, it's this blue one? It's a blue, yep, with white shutters. Yep. Isn't it cute? Yeah. It is really cute. 
The thing is, it was also 30000 bucks over her budget, which she could only afford by taking money out of her retirement savings. On the one hand, she says it feels crazy to pay that much. On the other, she says she feels lucky because if she'd waited even longer, she might be paying even more. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adrian Ma. There's been a similar narrative going on in Vermont. Anecdotal evidences, out-of-staters are snapping up properties sight unseen. There have been stories in Vermont media, and even the New York Times has been on the beat. That prompted Mike Leonard of Montpelier to ask Vermont Public Radio this question. Yeah, so my question was, what is actually going on with real estate due to the pandemic in Vermont? Is Vermont population booming all of a sudden? VPR's people-powered podcast, Brave Little State, took this question on. And what they found was the data to back this narrative of a population boom just does not exist. There's currently a lag in property sales numbers from the state, and other possible metrics have either not been released or not collected. So right now, we really don't know if there's been a population rise in Vermont. What we do know is that people are moving there from out of state. VPR's Peter Hirschfeld traveled to Rutland with question asker Mike Leonard to meet two of them. And the animal hospital, and there the big yellow house. Oh, all right. this is us. Oh, I love the color. This century-old farmhouse on the outskirts of downtown Rutland got its latest owners in July. Hey there. How's How's it going? going? Good, good. Are you Joseph? I am. Are you Joe or Joseph? Well, Joseph, but um, all my life I've gone by JT. Oh, JT. Yeah. Right. I'm yeah. Mike. Mike, how do you do? I'm nice Pete. To meet you. Good to meet you, JT. Yeah. And your name is? Before coming to Vermont, JT Look had spent the last five years living in the Fishtown neighborhood in Philadelphia. He worked at a bike shop in Philly, and he's already running his own business out of the garage here. So this is the bike shop? This is the bike shop. Yeah. Let me just go grab Kat real quick. She had a Zoom going. Okay. Sounds good. Kat Garland, who JT's running to get right now, is JT's housemate. Hi, I'm Kat. Hey, Kat. Hi. This is Mike. I'm Mike. Nice to meet you. And I'm Pete. Nice to meet you. Great to meet you. She'd been living in Brooklyn, where she worked as a high school teacher. Now she's a professor at the Rutland campus of Community College of Vermont. Our question asker, Mike, really wanted to know what compelled Kat and JT to move to Vermont in the middle of a pandemic. And it turns out the pandemic itself was a big reason. The pandemic really brought out not great things about the city and shut down all the good things about the city. Um, and it actually just kind of made it easier for me to be like, yeah, like I miss Vermont, I miss the outdoors, I miss the space, I miss that it's not crowded, I miss the night sky. Have you sensed any, like, like getting hairy eyeballs from people who are like, oh, some more out-of-staters coming to I, I'm in the I, still have, I still have my Pennsylvania tags. Yeah. I can notice it a little bit in all due honesty. That car but. is not fun to park at Hanover. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like, you know, carrying a sign that's like, I have quarantined. I've been here since July. Both Kat and JT had lived in Vermont before, and they'd both been playing with the idea of moving back here. COVID just happened to expedite that. And that was the case for another COVID transplant I talked to. I never would have thought in 2020 I'd move back to Vermont. That's Siobhan Kelly. And I currently live in Williston, Vermont, and previously was living in Somerville, Massachusetts for five years. Siobhan works for an international NGO called Last Mile Health. She grew up in Vermont and always wanted to move back here at some point, but she figured leaving Boston would require a major professional sacrifice. 
until suddenly it didn't. Our office in Boston is closed indefinitely, so I asked if I could move to Vermont and just continue working for the organization from Vermont for the future, which has been great. Siobhan says she's been cleared by her employer to work from home permanently, and so she's here for good now. And that's definitely been something that's been a nice kind of highlight of 2020 amidst such a hard year. My name is Ali Jalili. I live in Burlington, Vermont. Ali Jalili moved to Vermont from Washington, D.C. with his wife and two sons in March. They decided a while ago they wanted to make Vermont home, but when COVID hit, they fast-tracked the move. Before this, they'd lived all over the place as career foreign service workers for the U.S. State Department. Colombia, Kenya, Mexico, Russia, Thailand, Canada. As Ali approached retirement, which happens at the tender age of 50 for foreign service workers, he began looking for a place to put down real roots for the first time in his adult life. And he started to fall in love with the idea of Burlington, Vermont. So then, uh, just based on literally online research, it sort of started to rise towards the top of places. I've been covering politics and state government in Vermont for more than a decade. And just about every elected official in Vermont will tell you Vermont's biggest challenge is its demographics. That the proportion of old people to young people is on pace to become terrifyingly lopsided and could take a toll on everything from our economy to our tax revenues to our public schools. Concerns about our aging population are so pronounced that about two years ago, the legislature passed a bill that literally paid working age people to move here. But for people like Siobhan Kelly or J.T. Look or Kat Garland, COVID made the case for Vermont way better than any promotional campaign ever could. Who needs remote worker incentives when you've got a pandemic? Have you been hearing uh, this sense that, huh, um, it feels like a lot of folks have identified Vermont as uh, sort of a refuge? You're hearing the same thing we are. And I think if you talk to realtors, you will find that they are very busy. That's Lyle Jepson. And I'm the executive director of the Chamber and Economic Development of the Rutland Region. Jepson and his organization have been trying for years to get more out-of-staters to move here. They even have a program called Real Rutland. And it was prompted by the serious concern that we had in Rutland County and around the state about population decline and how that was affecting communities, how it was affecting businesses. Jepson bought into the benefits of population growth a long time ago. So if Vermont's relative success with COVID-19 is what brings folks in, then he says Rutland is waiting with open arms. People are seeing that outside of the state of Vermont. They're recognizing that we have not taken control of COVID because you can't, but we are doing everything we can to keep everyone safe. People are searching for safety right now. That was produced by Vermont Public Radio's Peter Hirschfeld for the podcast Brave Little State. You can listen to the entire episode at bravelittlestate.org and hear about these newcomers' intentions. Are they going to stay or are they going to peace out after the pandemic? Seven months ago, GBH Radio's Philip Martin surveyed his block in Cambridge, Massachusetts, as his neighbors began settling in for a pandemic-induced shutdown of unknown duration. Recently, Philip checked back in and finds that the coronavirus has forced some COVID-related changes, and they could be permanent. Much has changed on Maple Avenue since March. Trees sprouting green and yellow in springtime have morphed into shades of red and orange. The deep silence that descended on this street this spring has given way to routine traffic noises. 
and faces that were hidden behind curtains are now obscured by masks worn by folks pacing the sidewalks. Maple Avenue is clearly different, but it is not suffering as badly as other places, says my neighbor Risa Mednick. The contrasts between bucolic Maple Avenue and the rest of the world are pretty intense right now, and it's frankly really challenging to wake up each day and see the flowers blooming and um, you know the greenery all around us on our lovely street and know how much people are suffering around us. In March, Metnik was volunteering with food banks to deliver groceries to folks who needed them. Seven months later, she is still making those rounds. There are still people waiting in line for their unemployment claims from March to be approved um, that have gone without income for six months. A few doors down, Lisa Thoreau counts herself among the lucky ones. She runs a nonprofit that trains police how to interact with youth. Two things enabled us to survive. One was a PPP loan, and because of the escalation of problems between police and communities of color, we started getting more calls asking for our services. But Thoreau says she's still treading water. Others here on Maple Avenue have lost jobs due to the pandemic, including dentist Katie Ferrante. The clinic I work at has actually decided to permanently close after 60 years. So that's a large change that we're going through. She and husband Chris Ferrante say the upside is that they get to spend more time with their infant daughter, even though he's still on the job every day as a real estate developer. You get up every morning like it's a normal day and then just go as far as the room at the end of the hall. The Ferrantes are a tight-knit family. And Chris says the pandemic resulted in greater separation than they have ever known. I haven't seen Katie's family since the, I guess, the, you know, the, the travel restrictions went into place in uh, early March. It was the last time that, that we saw them until now. I flew up uh, yesterday evening. Marianne Weber, Chris's mother-in-law, said she was determined to make her way from Florida to Massachusetts for her granddaughter's one-year-old birthday but she had lots of reservations. I mean, it's it's scary because I am less concerned about myself, obviously, than I was about bringing something here to them. So I made sure to have a COVID test, but I was a little nervous just because you don't know what other people are doing out there. Jack Gray has many of the same reservations about safety. So he and his wife, Lisa, have eaten at an indoor restaurant only once and are careful in how they socialize on Maple Avenue, outdoors only. Gray said one lesson he has learned during the pandemic are the multiple uses of vodka. I used to clean the bathroom to sterilize it. I was able to get a bottle of 96-proof vodka because there was no alcohol in the drugstores. So I got some of that and used it to sterilize things. And my 11-year-old neighbor, Satcho, is leaving Maple Avenue. In March, his mother, Emily, said that with Satcho and his two siblings home from school, their condo had been turned into a combination classroom and gymnasium with classes and exercise competing for space. In the end, the family decided to move to a house with a big yard. Yeah, I am going to miss Maple Ave, but I think most, like, we're going to keep in touch probably, and I don't think we're going to, like, just leave, and we'll still, like, talk to people here, and that'll be really nice. The pandemic will eventually lift, and the rhythms of life will return to some version of normal on Maple Avenue. But some marks left by covid won't fade for many years. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Philip Martin.
Last week on Next, we had a story about a man who got extremely ill after presumed exposure to cyanobacteria from crabbing on a pond on Martha's Vineyard. Toxic cyanobacteria blooms are invading ponds all across New England as a result of excess nutrients and warming global temperatures. They can be dangerous, but many people aren't aware of the risks. In the final installment of CAI's series on the toxins, Eve Zukoff looks at how towns can confront this environmental threat. Biologist Karen Malkus's laboratory in the Barnstable town offices features a marble vanity with a mirror framed by light bulbs. It used to be the ladies' room, which is now converted into the lab. <laughs> Pipettes and amber bottles crowd Malkus's lab bench. Mostly, she works with her microscope and something called a zapper, which isolates cyanobacteria in the water sample. Anyway, let me show you. This is my favorite part. Malkus covers a glass slide with a drop of water. The slide has a thousand teeny tiny squares. So you take the sample. This is from Long Pond Centerville. And I'm just put. you can see them. Can you see the, those little green flecks? Under the microscope, she's looking for a species of cyanobacteria that produces one of the most toxic natural poisons known, according to the Centers for Disease Control. When the level in the sample is too high, Malchus can order a pond closed to swimming. This summer, she's had to issue pet advisories, warnings, and closures about 20 times to keep people safe. That's why I focus on this. It's, it's to get a sense of the bad guys. Right now, Karen Malkus is the only town employee on Cape Cod whose one job is looking for these bad guys. Because Barnstable is the only Cape town out of 15 with its own cyanobacteria monitoring program. Advocates all over New England are calling to increase the number of ponds being monitored. On the Cape, experts say a tenfold increase, from 50 to 500 ponds, might be necessary. That might seem like a big leap, until you consider how many ponds Barnstable County's Department of Health and Environment is already testing for other hazards. We have four beach samplers that go out to, you know, over 350 beaches every week. So they're boots on the ground and they see with their own eyes what's going on in the ponds. This is Bethany Travers, who oversees Barnstable County's Bathing Beach Monitoring Program. She says for decades, the county has been testing 105 public and semi-public ponds every week, but only for fecal bacteria like E. coli. So why aren't they monitoring ponds for cyanobacteria? Well, it's not monitored because the state does not have a requirement for cyanobacteria monitoring. They provide some support and funding for some of the testing that goes on. I would say it's probably not adequate. Though some New England states contribute more actively to monitoring programs, the feeling of inadequate state support is shared by environmentalists around the region. Recognizing the need, Travers says she hopes Barnstable County can contribute to a Cape-wide cyanobacteria monitoring program as soon as next spring. The whole monitoring effort, I think, is kind of in its infancy right now, and we're all sort of gearing up to find a path to improve it. For now, Travers adds, one of the best ways to monitor ponds is to teach the public what to look for and who to call when they suspect a toxic bloom. But to some... 
better monitoring and more public education isn't the answer. It is no way a solution to say we're going to post warnings around these beloved waters and allow them to be degraded, and that will keep the public safe. That's Christopher Killian with the Conservation Law Foundation. He says it's better to solve the problem from the source. And the main source comes from septic systems, serving about 80 percent of the households on the Cape. Those systems allow too much nitrogen to seep through the groundwater and end up in ponds, where it fuels cyanobacteria blooms. CLF is now asking a judge to stop new septic system installations and inspections in two towns until the problem is under control. The first steps there are first and foremost to stop approving systems that are going to make the problem worse based on the flimsy rationale that it's really hard and really expensive to do anything else. Killian argues that a five to ten year plan with the help of state and federal dollars could solve the Cape cyanobacteria problem. Given the types of infrastructure investments that were made to the tunes of tens of billions of dollars to clean up Boston Harbor and the dramatic positive outcomes in that example alone, we view this as very solvable. Tens of thousands of ponds are spread like jewels across the Cape and islands. The fear is that without action, each pond becomes a potential danger to those who come to visit. And these are treasures worth preserving. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zukoff. Coming up, Boston hip-hop artist Latrell James. We talk about his upcoming EP, Under, his life, and the inspiration behind his lyrics. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. And this is Latrell James, a hip-hop artist and producer from Boston. That's James's song, No Laws, off his new EP, Under, which was released this month. And Latrell James joins us to talk about his life and music. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about this song, No Laws. What does it mean to you? What's the message you're trying to get out there? Uh, there's just no rules or, or, you know, boundaries on not just creativity, but, you know, your, your highest potential at the end of the day or whatever you want to chase after but also it was that and then also highlighting police brutality going on in america as well so there's two sides to it yeah that's so interesting because i you know i heard the police brutality side of it when i listened i hadn't necessarily connected or thought about it from the creativity standpoint which is such a good point and i'm I'm wondering how much this song is a reflection of the current racial justice movement and of current protests uh, against police violence. I wrote this record probably like almost two years now ago, but that goes to show you that even two years ago or even four years ago, you can reference my music that in my short time, these last five years of putting out music, not much have changed. Do you connect with that idea of like, um, there's no laws, there's no limits to creativity? Did you have a point where you felt like there were limits? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like 
for me specifically being someone who produces and somebody who who raps and somebody who you know uses my voice I sing sometimes too so like I felt like at one point you know people boxed me into just being a rapper and not realizing like that's not what I really want to do I'm just an artist I want to create I want to make people happy I want to connect with people on their side I want to connect to people and make them dance so that's all I really care about you grew up in Dorchester, which is a neighborhood in Boston. What what was your childhood like? Uh, I love my childhood. When I make music, I think about my childhood first because it was so just cultured. I grew up in Dorchester, specifically off of Geneva Ave. There's a Vietnamese community, there's Haitian community, there's Jamaican community, there's a Cape Verdean community. And you just culture. You get to grow up around all these people who come from all different walks of life, but we all enjoyed the same things, which was hanging outside and cracking the hydrant when it got too hot or, or playing basketball across the street. All our parents knew each other. So I don't know. It was a great time. So I always dig back to those moments because I feel like I was the happiest and I was my most purest at those moments. When you were that age, did you have your sights set on being a hip hop artist? No, honestly, <laughs> at that age, I probably want to be a veterinarian. I love animals still to this day. So Anytime I see any form of animal that somebody has, I just I just want to be around it. Or I go to pet stores and just sit there and just look at reptiles. I've had everything really? under the sun as a pet. So, yeah, at that time, I was thinking about animals. Um, and then before even rapping, I wanted to sing. That was the first thing I ever wanted to do because of Michael Jackson. You released your debut album called 12 in 2015 when you were in your mid-20s, but then very shortly after that, both of your parents were struggling with health issues and you became somewhat of a caretaker for them. What was that time in your life like? Uh, that time specifically for me was, it was a challenge. I mean, I felt like I was I was getting the most steam I had as an artist and in my career at that moment. That Project 12 was really propelling me and getting me looks from labels and everything. So, But when my parents got sick, it was just like, I don't know. It's, you got to make sure you take care of the people that take, took care of you when you were you know, young and incapable of doing the things you wanted to do. Plus, they supported everything that I ever wanted to do musically, creatively. So, like, I can take some time out of my life and make sure that they're good and then get back on my feet. So that's what happened between 2015 and until my next release. Which was your EP in, in 2019. So that's a long time. Mm -hmm. And then so in the midst of that, you became the voice behind a national Cheerios commercial in 2017. You beat out mm -hmm. around 30 other artists. I think you also worked on the musical production for the commercial. And as soon as I listened recently, I was like, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. So I think some of our listeners will definitely recognize this. Start with the good, and the good will come back to you. Good, go so it's super catchy. Did that feel like your big break, or, or what did that mean in the context of, of everything else for you and your family? I think it was more of an affirmation that I can use my, my gifts and abilities to be financially stable. And it also just was an affirmation to my parents, my grandmother, that, you know, you can really make a, a lump sum of money from being in the creative field. So money, this is like a theme that kind of runs through a lot of your songs. In September, you released three singles that are not on, on the EP under, and among them is Lil Mo. Let's listen to that. 
Make a little dough, watch the people start flocking. Make a little mold, then your foes start watching. Make a little mold, you put a Bentley in a bowl. Cause you supposed to take your mom and father out of public housing. Look, make a little dough, don't you blow it on the outfit. Make a little mold, you tuck it in your Nike boxes. Make a little mold, they glued to every social post. Trying to find out where you live so they can go inside your pockets. Make a little dough, I know the IRS. As I mentioned, there's this money theme in a lot of your songs I I hope maybe you agree Mm -hmm. Um, and the way I read it is there's this tension between not having money then having money Mm -hmm. but there's also this tension between what it means when you make money like the materialism on the one side along with people maybe wanting money from you and then on the other side it's like purpose and connection with others and I'm wondering if you relate is that the tension that you feel and when did you start feeling that tension uh, yeah, th- that's a great follow up question, because <laughs> right after that commercial, uh, that's when I started to feel that tension. That's when I actually wrote that record. Lil Mo for me is like it's an educational piece because like it, I'm trying to tell people what not to do with their money, like and, and all the wrong things and all the expectations not to have when you get money. Like these things, what people expect you to do. But at the end of the day, you got to make sure that you're good before you can help others. Right. So. That's really what the whole Lil Mo thing's about. Like, literally in that song, and Lil Mo, I said, make a little dough, you better think about investments. Make a little mo, you better think about investments. I literally said that twice just so people understood that, again, money sitting in your account doesn't make money. There's the last line of Lil Mo where you say, and I, I can't say the one of the words, but who would all have thought all this love you? can mm. effing hurt you? Um, mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? only curse word in that whole song too um and it's intentional uh just because again sometimes you think that you think that the love you're receiving is is genuine and like that love was only coming because of the things that i was achieving at the moment and people were showing extra love and and being extra helpful with everything it was only because of the status that i quote unquote acquired at that moment and like, that's just me. Like, it's just me. It's literally my open scribe telling people like, hey, this is what happened to me. I made a little dough from a Cheerios commercial. And this is how I felt afterwards. So like money isn't everything at the end of the day. Was there people just like kind of coming out of the woodwork knowing that you'd had this successful thing? Or was it was this tension existent in the relationships that you already had? No, it, 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 people always come out of the woodworks. It's more so like uh, certain people want to do business now. And when and when when you quote the price, it's outrageous because they know something that you've done. Uh, those type of things like I'm like, wow, like I'm getting all this love. But nobody knows that your your local videographer is charging me five hundred more dollars now than he did last week. <laughs> In your new EP, Under, which we mentioned was just released, there's this song, Run Forest, which I want to play. Thinking about my 30s, me, my death. Uh, 
thinking about my come ups and my debts. So last when my phone got GPS. Look, find myself strolling down the timeline. Uh, God, when is it my time? In Run Forest, you talk about this feeling of the timeline of life. I think you and I are around the same age. Are you 30? Yep. Yeah. And so this also this feeling of your own mortality. Um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that record is special to me because just the first line, late 20s, got me feeling stressed. That whole song is really just uh, when you're young, when you're 20, you think like, all right, cool. I got all this time and you do have all the time in the world. But there's a pressure now with social media that you're supposed to have everything in order by the time you're 30 house, kids, two cats and a dog. And like, you know, I feel like I just figured myself out as I'm still figuring myself out as a human being. I don't think I figured myself out at all completely, but like. At the age of 30, I feel like I know what I want to do. I know how I need to do it. And I know the approach of doing it. So, like, I don't know. I just wanted people to know, like, that song's for us 30-year-olds. Like, yo, we're okay. But also for the 25-year-olds that's, like, feeling the pressure of, like, I got five more years to get my life together. Yeah. Yeah, that pressure is real. You you have that line, thinking about my 30s mean my death. That line. It's that crunch like straight up because if i don't do what what am i going to do from now 30 until the end of t- my time and that could be tomorrow so i'm always thinking about that we get in the vehicle every day and drive down the street i just i'm just grateful for the time that i have here and I know I do just that was Boston hip hop artist Latrell James in the song Run Forest off his new EP Under, which was released October 27th. And that's a wrap on our show this week. Next week, we'll devote the entire episode to a new podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that explores the Lori list. It's a list of cops in New Hampshire whose credibility has been called into question. It's also a list that's hard to get your hands on, no matter how hard you try. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Special thanks this week to Vermont Public Radio's Chris Albertine. The music you hear on Next is by Musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio.